0: Good morning to each of you. I invite you to turn with me in the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians to chapter 2, the, the title for today's sermon is Kidnapped. That is about as imaginative as I get, Kidnapped. It's actually the title of a book I read when I was maybe, when I was, yeah, maybe 10 years of age. Uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson, and it tells the story of a young man named David Balfour. And uh, it takes place in Scotland, uh, late 1700s. And David, he's a, he's a teenager, his parents pass away, they die, and he becomes the responsibility of an uncle whom he has never met, Ebenezer. And off David goes to live with his uncle, Ebenezer. David doesn't realize he is actually, he himself, the heir of a great fortune. But his uncle knows it. And his uncle also knows that if David were out of the way, he would be the heir of that said fortune. And so his uncle devises a plan to get rid of David. Uh, One morning, he informs him that they have business with a captain of a ship at port. And so they travel down to the seaside, they travel down to this port, they board a little skiff, and they sail out to the boat which is moored in the bay. And as soon as they board this ship, David is knocked senseless, lights out, and his uncle leaves. Yes, his uncle had business. He had prearranged with the captain that the captain of that ship would take David away from Scotland and deposit him in a far-off foreign place known as the Carolinas, uh, so that he would never return again. If you want to know how that story plays out, you're going to have to read the book. My point is simply this, kidnapped. That was David's condition, David Balfour, kidnapped taken prisoner, taken captive, and in that condition he lost, obviously, this goes without speaking, his liberty, his freedom. He could no longer make his own choices and decisions. He could no longer go wherever he wanted to go. He could no longer do whatever he wanted to do. Uh, He was a captive. When we turn to Colossians chapter 2, and we get into the three little verses that we're going to consider today, we discover that the Apostle Paul warns us of the danger of being kidnapped. He warns us of the danger of being taken captive. Now, the Apostle Paul is not speaking of a physical captivity. Paul is not suggesting, look, there's someone waiting for you behind the bush, just waiting to jump out and pounce. He's not speaking of a physical captivity. He is speaking of an intellectual captivity. And he is warning the recipients of this letter, and by God's sovereign grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is warning us of this very real danger. That there is a way of thinking that seeks to kidnap our minds. There is a certain way of thinking that is seeking to take captive our minds. With that clearly in view, follow along, pay close attention to what Paul says beginning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it. That no one takes you captive, literally. See to it that no one kidnaps you by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, just pause there. The only time in the New Testament the word philosophy is used, love of wisdom, is basic. Is its basic meaning? Uh, Paul is not throwing a wet blanket over all theo, you know philosophical inquiry. He is not simply saying, look, all philosophy, throw it out the window. And so if there are any college students here and you're studying philosophy, you cannot use this as an excuse to drop the course. You do need to use your common sense because you're going to hear a lot of gibberish in any philosophy course. It'll make your head spin some of that stuff. And it is a dead-end street, no doubt about it. But that's not what Paul is warning against here. He is referring to a particular way of thinking that was prevalent in his day, this way of thinking, and it was marked by what? Empty deceit. So let me start again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So that's his warning here. We need to begin by understanding his warning in the larger context. If you were here last Sunday, you'll remember, we looked at verses 4 through 7. And in those verses, we acknowledge that Paul is writing and speaking very pastorally. And he begins in verse 4 by giving us what? A word of admonition. Do you remember that? A word of admonition. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does he say? He has established earlier in this letter two pillars. I'm almost afraid to ask if you remember what the two pillars are. I'll I'll spare you. I'm going to give them to you. The first pillar is what? The sufficiency of the word of truth. And the second pillar is the sufficiency of the Son of God. He's established those pillars. I say this. I establish that foundation in order that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. That's his admonition. And then he gives a word of commendation in verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so, yes, I've just given you this warning, but I don't want you to think, that I, I don't want you to think or interpret what I'm saying as some sort of criticism. I, I need to give you the warning. I have to put the warning out there. But I do realize that I'm speaking to a mature bunch. Oh, Epaphras, what a guy. That man who started this church and his preaching and his teaching. I know he's established a good foundation and I know you're growing in the faith. I know of your maturity and your stability. And so he gives them this pat on the back, this commendation. And then he gives them an exhortation in verse six. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Keep doing what you have been doing in the rest of the chapter. He expands on what he said back in verse 4. Plausible arguments. This delusion, this deception that is out there. And he gives four cases. The first begins in verse 8. The second begins in verse 16. The third begins in verse 18. And the fourth begins in verse 20. And so where are we today? We are in the first plausible argument. I have laid the foundation... The sufficiency of the word of truth, apostolic tradition. The sufficiency of the Son of God. We are saved by virtue of our union with Him. And when we become one with Him, every privilege, every blessing that He purchased at Calvary's cross becomes ours in Him. That is the foundation upon which you are building. But understand, you're going to hear things. And you're going to be exposed to things that will seek to delude you, move you away from the foundation. And here's the first example. See to it, verse 8, that no one kidnaps you. You're thinking. Make sure no one kidnaps you, takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And what he does in the rest of verse 8 through into verses 9 and 10 is basically this. He contrasts a wrong way of thinking. Uh, This thinking that could take them captive. he, He describes it. And he basically sums it up in one term, emptiness. And then he contrasts it with a right way of thinking, which we can sum up in one word, fullness. And so his basic argument is this, by way of an example, we're thirsty just parched. We want something to drink. And there we sit down at the table, and there in front of us is this enormous mug. The mug is empty. Is it going to do anything to quench our thirst? No. There has to be iced tea or water or something in that mug to satisfy our thirst. This is Paul's point here. You've laid a good foundation. You're building on a good foundation. Be careful because ideas are going to come along that will seek to move you away from that foundation. Here's idea number one, this kind of thinking that will arise. But I want you to get this, that this wrong way of thinking in the end, in the final analysis, is... Empty. Empty. It's useless. Complete emptiness. And I'm going to contrast it with a right way of thinking in which there is fullness. That's his argument. And so look at the first one the wrong way of thinking, emptiness. He gives three very specific marks. See two at verse A that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Here is mark number one according to human tradition. Mark number one, this wrong way of thinking is characterized by what? Wrong authority. Its authority is wrong. What does it appeal to? Human tradition. In contrast to what? Divine tradition. The son received of the father. The apostles received from the son. We have received from the apostles. The church is built, says Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the New Testament and the Old Testament. It is the completed revelation. It is the apostolic doctrine, tradition. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we have this tremendous affirmation concerning the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God, divine revelation. Well, here's the first mark of this wrong way of thinking. Its authority is wrong. It's based on human tradition. And so it arises from something other than divine revelation. Second mark is this. Its methodology is wrong. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, its authority is wrong. Mark number two, according to the elemental spirit. Its methodology is wrong. Depending on the translation you're reading from, the word might be spirits or the word might be principles. It's tricky. Uh, this is one of those instances in which uh, it, it is tricky. It is difficult to know for certain what Paul is speaking of. If he, I mean, Because the term literally means the ABCs. That's what he's referring to, according to the ABCs. And so we're to translate it principles. If we're to translate it principles, the Apostle Paul might be referring to certain philosophical systems. He might might be referring to that sort of philosophy, that way of thinking in his day. And the philosophers spilled a lot of ink over this, whereby they believed that there were four basic elements, right? Fire, water, wind, and earth. And so much of their inquiry and investigation had to do with the relationship between these four basic elements and how we were related to them. And so Paul might be saying, look, make sure no one takes you captive by those ABCs. That methodology is all wrong. That type of philosophical inquiry, it's possible. But I think it's far more likely spirits is a better translation. Because also in Paul's day, there was this way of thinking, alive and well, that there were spirits angels, powers, which inhabited the stars, the planets. That yes, there was a divine being, and between that divine being and us, his creatures, existed these spiritual powers. And in order to know the divine, in order to reach the divine, uh, we had to approach him, her, it, through these powers, these intermediaries. And this thinking begins to exert a certain influence even upon Christian thought in the early church. And I think that's likely what Paul has in view. You go back to chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 16. Just the emphasis in these first two chapters. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. What's he referring to? Angelic beings, powers. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Look at verse 15, same chapter. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And look at verse 18, same chapter. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. And so there is this this way of thinking, uh, according to which there are these intermediaries between the divine and the human, between the spiritual and the material. And so to, uh, to, to, to arrive, to reach, to know union with the divine, we must approach Him through the spiritual powers and forces and beings and angels. It's out there. And Paul already anticipates that at some point, it is going to begin to exert an influence upon the church. And people are going to begin to hear, look, okay, you're a Christian, that's fantastic. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's fantastic. You have the scriptures, fantastic. You're building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, great. But have you ever heard of this? Do you realize that to really know God, you must do this? Do you understand that to come to a full understanding and knowledge of who God is, you must approach him like this? There are forces out there. There are angels out there. There are things in the way inhibiting our spiritual progress as Christians, and we need to address that. We need to confront them. We need to deal with them. We need to engage with them. They need to be out of the way. They must be subdued. They need to be dealt with in order for us to grow spiritually as God wants us to grow. Paul's anticipating this. He's saying, be careful, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Its authority is wrong, according to human tradition. Its methodology is wrong, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And thirdly, its reality is wrong. Look at the very last statement in verse 8. And not according to... Christ. wrong authority wrong methodology and wrong reality this thinking will actually lead you away from christ he has put christ on display in chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 and he has shown us that the lord jesus is the sovereign creator and the lord jesus is the sufficient redeemer Any way of thinking that moves us away from that reality is to be rejected. Because that way of thinking is seeking to captivate, that is, kidnap our minds. That's the wrong way of thinking. Ultimately bankrupt. Ultimately empty. Now he contrasts, makes a contrast. Drastic. Beginning in verse 9, continuing into verse 10 with his description of the right way of thinking. Not empty, but full. And again, there are three marks. The three marks of the wrong way of thinking, wrong authority, wrong methodology, wrong reality. Mark number one of this right way of thinking. Right reality. Its reality is right. Verse 9. For in him, here's the starting point, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a reference to the Lord Jesus. Paul chooses his words carefully here. He he wants to be clear that when it comes to Christ and when it comes to this, this, this truth that Christ is God, we, we are not merely affirming that Christ possesses uh, the will of God. We aren't merely affirming that Christ possesses the mind of God. We aren't affirming merely, simply, that Christ displays and magnifies the attributes of God. No, we are affirming, as Paul makes clear, as he articulates it here in verse 9, that the whole fullness... That is the very essence of God dwells in Christ bodily. It is a reference to the incarnation. He is saying, all that God is, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever has seen me, declared Christ, has seen the Father. We affirmed this about a month ago when we were back in chapter 1, verse 15. When Paul says that the Lord Jesus is the image, do you remember that? He is the image of the invisible God. Now what is an image? An image is something which bears the likeness, reflects the likeness of its original. We stand in front of the mirror, we see an image. It's reflecting the likeness of the original. An image can reflect, that is manifest, the likeness of its original in one of two ways. It can do so by way of representation. And so we pick our coins, the quarter. We see George Washington's head on the quarter. our quarter. We know that is an image of George Washington, but George Washington is not in the quarter. He's dead and buried. It's simply an image, a representation of his likeness. But an image can also represent the likeness of its original, not merely by way of representation, but by way of manifestation, meaning what? The original, the, 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 the original is actually present in the image. That is Paul's point here. That in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is an affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the first mark of right thinking. It is the beginning of all reality. Understanding who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He gives a second mark, right methodology, verse 10. And you, little play on words here, have been filled in him. And so all the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, a reference to the incarnation, and you have been filled in him. In other words, because of who he is, And because of the fullness of who he is, his deity, the essence of God dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of who he is, when you become one with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, you are made full. That is, you are made complete. There's the right methodology. We have the right reality, who Christ is, the right methodology when it comes to spiritual growth when it comes to maturing in the Christian faith, when it comes to preserving on the way, when it comes to walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus Christ, here is the only right methodology. It is understanding who Christ is and understanding who we now are in Him. And that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received everything we're ever going to receive. There is nothing more. In Christ, we get everything we're ever going to get. Here's a question for you. The great apostle, the apostle Paul, the dying thief upon the cross, which of these two was closer to the Lord Jesus? Now be careful. Which of these two was closer to the Lord Jesus? I flinch when people say, I don't feel very close to the Lord. You don't realize what you're saying, folks. You do not realize what you're saying. To be close to God is to be in Christ, and we are as close as we're ever going to get. The Apostle Paul was no more blessed than the thief on the cross. The Apostle Paul was no more privileged than the thief on the cross. Everything that the Apostle Paul enjoyed in Christ, the thief on the cross enjoyed in Christ. Yes, there is such a thing as growing in our understanding. Yes, there is such a thing as maturing as believers. But do you know what it is to grow? Do you know what it is to mature? It's simply to understand and come to grips with what we already are. Do you get that? That we have been made complete in Christ. All the fullness dwells in him. And what? We have been filled in him. And so when we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to all that belongs to him. And so I need grace. I desperately need grace. The sins just mounting. And the whether it be with the tongue or the mind or an action, indeed, sins, a lifetime of sins, I need grace. And I come to the Lord Jesus Christ and I find fullness of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Forgiveness. I need righteousness. I know God's holy law and I know he demands that I be righteous, but I am unrighteous, riddled with unrighteousness. I could never fill that, fulfill that command. But I come to the Lord Jesus and what do I find? I find a fullness of righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for me. That I might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I I come to, I, I need peace. Oh, the problems in my life. The struggles as I, as I look out on the horizon. And I see what's coming down the highway. And it's just this, it's that. So many causes of fear. So many causes of anxiety. I need peace. When I come to the Lord Jesus, I find a fullness of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I need wisdom. I'm such an idiot. Oh, the folly, the foolishness. The decisions I may have made, the choices I've made, the things I have done, the things I just cannot grasp and get through this thick noggin of mine. Oh, I need wisdom. And I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and what do I find? I find fullness of wisdom. In him are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want joy. I desperately want joy. I don't want the Super Bowl kind of joy. For maybe two hours, either Seattle or Denver, they're going to go nuts. Static enthusiasm. It'll be gone tomorrow. I want joy. I want something permanent. I want something meaningful. I want something lasting. I want something eternal. I come to the Lord Jesus and I find fullness of joy. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I need life. I need life desperately. I'm not talking merely about physical life, although that is an issue. I'm going to die and I know there's a resurrection coming, a resurrection unto condemnation, that is damnation or salvation. I need life. I need God. Where can I find this life? I'm not going to find it in these intermediaries floating around in outer space and all these foolish notions of human thinking, human tradition, divorced from divine revelation. I'm not going to get it by flying by the seat of my pants. I'm not going to get it by following my emotional ups and downs here, there, everywhere. I'm going to get it how? By being fixed on that twofold foundation, the sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God. And I need life. And in the Lord Jesus, I find fullness of life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I put it to you again. The Apostle Paul, how long was he a believer? Probably 30, 40 years. Look at what he wrote. Look at what he did. Look at what he accomplished. Look at his experiences. Thief on the cross, how long was he a believer? Hours? Which of the two was more blessed? Which of the two was more privileged? Which of the two was closer to God? They were exactly the same. Oh, Christian, you were as close to God as you're ever going to get. Don't let me ever hear you say again. I don't feel very close to God. Don't ever say, unless you're a particularly brave soul, don't ever say that to me again. I don't feel close to God. You were as close as you are ever going to get. You already have everything you're ever going to get. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. We are one with the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are filled in him. We are complete. It is all there. And Paul's point is this. Oh, my brothers and sisters, do not be moved. Because it's going to come. This is delusional ideas. And this way of thinking, but have you done this? How are you feeling today? What about this experience? Do you know this? And it was all designed to do what? Kidnap your mind. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The third mark of right thinking, quickly, it's authority. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Here it is, right authority, who is the head of all rule. And authority. So it's a marked contrast. Wrong way of thinking over here. Wrong authority, human tradition. Wrong methodology, elemental spirits of the world. Wrong reality, not according to Christ. Right way of thinking over here. Right reality, in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right methodology, you have been filled in him and right authority he is the head of all rule and authority and when you think about applying all of this we need to be careful we need to apply it and we need to speak directly and think in terms of two categories two groups of people i made the point last sunday that when it comes to having a relationship with the lord jesus there are three possibilities there are only three ways to be related to jesus Number one is this, you are without Christ, an unbeliever, on the outside, looking in. Number two is this, you are in Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus. Christ has taken hold of you by the Holy Spirit. You are now one with him. And thirdly, there is to be with Christ. Christians who have died, that is their reality now, the beatific vision. That is their experience now as they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. To die is to be with him. But for the still living, these two categories, either you are without Christ or you are with Christ in Christ. For those who are without Christ, when you hear what you've heard today, let me give you a commandment from God's word, what your response should be. It's taken out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 22. Here it is. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. That is it. Oh, unbeliever, my unbelieving friend, turn to me and be saved, for I am God. And there is, there is no other. When it comes to salvation, there is but one hope. It is found in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a tremendous promise that when we turn to him, when we despair of our own inability to ever please God, When we really come to grips with what we are in God's sight, our unholiness riddled with sin, and we despair of our own righteousness, we turn to Christ. We look to Christ. And what a wonderful promise. Turn to me and be saved. God himself promising, for I am God and there is no other. My friend, he will save you certainly. That is without doubt. He will save you immediately. That is without delay. And he will save you completely. That is without degree. Because to be in Christ is to be filled. You know your own heart. And God, even better than you, knows your heart. And if you are without Christ, that is God's command to you this day. Turn to him. Look to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, forsaking all other idols, turning from all sinful delights, and rest in him alone as the Savior of sinners. To those of us who are in Christ, what is the command? We find it back in verse 6, Paul's words, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. In Him. We keep doing what we have been doing. We hold firm to the two pillars, the sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God. We stand on guard against this kind of thinking that will seek to take us captive. And we understand who Christ is. We revel in who we are in Christ. And from that foundation, we will not be moved. And we grow in our faith, we grow in our perseverance, we grow in our endurance, as we grow in our understanding and appreciation of God's bountiful blessings to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we need, are you convinced of this? Everything we need to save and satisfy the soul is found in Christ. Jeremy Walker, and with this I'll conclude, he wrote in one of his books, no one has ever walked through these fields, In referring to Christ's fullness, no one has ever walked through these fields, no one has ever climbed these mountains, no one has ever traversed these valleys, no one has ever explored these trackless seas to their depth, No one has ever traced these rushing rivers to their sources. Why? Because his fullness is inexhaustible. Well, that's where we need to live daily as Christians. That's Paul's point here. Don't let anybody delude you with false arguments, empty deceit, these philosophies, this way of thinking. You stand firm. You continue where you are. And you grow in faith in your head the Lord Jesus Christ and understand your identity in him. And understand his inexhaustible fullness which is there for not only the salvation but the satisfaction of our souls. Our Father, we do bless your son's magnificent name this day. We praise you for the incarnation, that miracle of miracles. And for what he accomplished through his obedience and his suffering, we praise you for the gift of salvation in him, making your people one with him through faith, and for all of those gifts that you have bestowed so wonderfully upon us. Father, we look to you, the one who is enthroned in the heavens, and we thank you that through your Son, the Lord Jesus, we can approach you, no other intermediary necessary. We approach you through Christ and we give you thanks in his most precious name. Amen.